This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Still uh, in our first hour here on the Scott Thompson Show and still focusing on uh, what is happening at uh, at Congress in Washington, D.C. and the Senate Intelligence Committee as a former FBI director, James Comey, is uh, on the stand, so to speak, or at least testifying uh, on his behalf. And uh, he has uh, flat out said that uh, the president uh, lied to him and so much so that he felt it uh, was uh, his responsibility to document uh, their conversations, and um, he basically is accusing uh, the President Trump of uh, doing things that he shouldn't, namely uh, the uh, Russian uh, scandals uh, surrounding uh, election meddling and 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 all that. Um, and one one, uh, I mean, there's a host of uh, intriguing comments that Comey has made, but one of them is that he hopes the president will release all the tapes, quote unquote, release all the tapes, and then. You can uh, recall in your memory that Donald Trump uh, said that um, James Comey uh, better not uh, hope that uh, the tapes are released. And that had uh, all of us thinking, well, was their conversation recorded? Was the president, was someone in the Trump administration recording their conversation in the White House? So uh, Comey was asked today about the possibility that Trump may have recorded their conversations and um, ousted FBI Director James Comey is saying that, uh, hey, if, if those conversations were recorded, he hopes the president will release all the tapes. So that gives you a little snippet of information that he believes that perhaps their uh, conversations were recorded. And he's also said that he would be good with it. Uh, Trump may not be. <laughs> he might not want those conversations uh, to be released. Another very interesting comment, this one coming from House Speaker Paul Ryan, and we'll ask our next guest who's uh, standing by in a couple minutes, Reggie Cicchini from Global News. House Speaker Paul Ryan out today uh, says that Donald Trump is, quote, learning as he goes. Duh. Uh, he's learning as he goes about government and probably did not fully understand the protocols that keep the FBI separate from the president. Wouldn't Wouldn't this be in the presidential debriefing? Hey, Donald, this is what you can and cannot do. And I get the picture that that was done, but uh, the Donald just glossed over all the fine print and didn't read into what uh, should and should not happen within the confines of uh, the White House or the Oval Office. Uh, Ryan was also asked about uh, Comey's account that Trump uh, pushed him to drop the investigation into former National Security Advisor uh, Michael Flynn. And Ryan said uh, that he had not been watching the hearings, which I find bogus as well. But uh, he said the FBI needs to be independent and the president is new at this. He later added he's learning as he goes. I think we can all understand and realize and even sympathize with someone who's not a career politician and Donald Trump entering the most powerful position on the planet. And yes, there's going to be a learning curve. But, I mean, you talk about uh, bombs and explosions and explosive comments and uh, landmines that he has either set up or stepped on. Man, oh man, I mean, this has just been a debacle of a presidency from day one. It's been one thing after another, and this is just the latest thing. Uh, there's also a White House spokesman that's saying that uh, President Donald Trump is not a liar. Uh, this after uh, Comey today said that uh, the administration, the Trump administration, had uh, spread lies, plain and simple, and defamed him at the agency. That's a very damning uh, statement from James Comey, and it goes on and on and on. And I got to think that the blowback is going to be humongous on the Trump administration. There's no doubt about it. When you have a former FBI director and, and you know, a guy who has not been uh, in that post uh, for a short time, we're talking uh, nearly 10 years. I think it might actually be a little bit longer than that. Uh, you know, a career police official or a career investigator who um, is telling it like it is. I mean, he's under oath and he's, uh, I think, doing a uh, superb job of identifying uh, through his lens uh, what happened and, and why he believes uh, some things happened the way they did. Um, there's also some interesting comments uh, coming from, uh, we talked about Paul Ryan, but coming from uh, the White House, as I mentioned, Donald Trump not being a liar. And there was one other thing that caught my eye as well, uh, testifying in his uh, written testimony that uh, Trump, in a uh, strange private encounter near the grandfather clock in the Oval Office, so this is back to the documentation 
that James Comey had to do, realizing that, you know what, maybe I should just write some things down and document uh, some of these meetings. So this one, uh, as he said, a strange private encounter near the grandfather clock in the Oval Office. And you can see the um, the detail to these notes that Trump pushed Comey to end his investigation into former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and also confirming that Trump's claim that he told him three times that the president was not directly under investigation. And that right there might be Donald Trump's out. If the president is not under direct investigation, uh, someone within the Trump administration, someone within the White House or, or the Oval Office, that inner circle... Uh, might be the button pusher in terms of the election scandals or the uh, the Russian hacking, the Russian meddling. If it wasn't the president, if it was someone in his administration, um, maybe Trump will survive this. One of the questions I'm asking uh, at Rick Samprin at AM 900 CHML on Twitter is, uh, will the testimony of James Comey lead to, is this a precursor to Donald Trump, being impeached or are we really far off that path or not even going down that path is this something that uh, donald trump is going it's going to be another uh, you know kink in the armor so to speak it's going to be another a bullet wound or a flesh wound um and uh, james comey is uh, you know painting that picture and a lot of the blowback is going to be on his administration but not necessarily on the president uh the president really is that uh, oh, he's the face of the administration, obviously. So if there is, uh, you know, some kind of uh, impeachment talk, maybe he could maybe he could sidestep that uh, at, at this point. Uh, I've been told that uh, Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News uh, based in Washington, D.C., is uh, is with us. Reggie, are you here? I am here. Thanks for joining us today. So uh, what have you seen today? What has caught your eye? What are some of the statements that James Comey has made that has really caught your attention? Well, there were a couple of them. I mean, you have to start at the very beginning of this testimony. It was around quarter to 11 this morning. Uh, he was asked about uh, the meetings that he had with the president, nine meetings over a four-month period, which is already unheard of for an FBI director. But it was the one conversation he said when, quote, my impression was something big was about to happen, and I need to remember every word that's spoken. That was from a conversation that happened inside the Oval Office with just the president and just the FBI director at the time, and it was uh, focusing on Michael Flynn and that investigation, and that was when the president had said to him, look, Flynn's a good guy. Let's go easy on him or let's let this go. That was one of those big things where, you know, we all kind of looked and said, all right, so now we have the former FBI director coming out and saying this in person. Has anything caught you by surprise? Everything that I've seen, maybe the, uh, you know, the, the accusation from Comey that Trump lied plain and simple might be the most the most damning comment of, of today. It's the biggest comment, you know, when it comes to uh, the Russian meddling, because we've heard the president, we've heard the administration, we've heard Republicans, uh, some Republicans say, basically since the day of the election, the Russia story is a hoax, that this is fake news. This is something the mainstream media is spinning endlessly and won't let go of. Then to have the FBI director sit here and say, look, there's no fuzz on this. This is as clear as day. Election meddling did happen, and we need to deal with the fact that that is a reality. Uh, also saying that uh, Trump defamed him and the FBI. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about legal issues now post-testimony, post really. Absolutely. I mean, you have to remember, when James Comey left his position, we had the president telling the nation and telling Americans as a whole that he had lost the support of, of politicians and he had lost the support of the rank and file inside the FBI. It didn't appear to be the case. That appeared to have been a lie that was being perpetuated by the White House. James Comey had the FBI standing behind him with their hands on his shoulder saying, look, everything that you've done over the last several years is all things that we have followed you for. There is a court of public opinion as well, and I asked uh, our first guest on uh, today's program, you know, how do you think the public is going to receive James Comey's testimony today? Well, I mean, this is going to be, you know, what, depending on what side of the aisle you're asking. If you if you talk to some staunch Republicans, these really hardcore Donald Trump supporters, they're going to say, well, look, everything that the, that the president is saying must be true because we elected him to office and, and you know, th this is our president. You have the flip side that are going to say, well, look, everything that the FBI director is saying right now is, it, it, you know, maybe gospel. He has these memos that he's written. He's had conversations that he's had with other people. These are the things that we need to be looking at.
We're chatting with uh, Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News, uh, based uh, in Washington, D.C., here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott today. Uh, uh, another uh, very interesting comment from James Comey today regarding the supposed tapes uh, from their White House or Oval Office conversations uh, between uh, Comey and Trump is uh, he's saying that, Lordy, I hope there are tapes, and he's encouraging the president to release the tapes. Uh, have have the tapes been a, a major magnet for any of the senators asking questions? Well, this is one of the things that people want to know. If the president is recording conversations, it's under the purview of the Intelligence Committee to be able to ask and say, look, we want these tapes. We want to know what was said. But it goes along the same lines. If they're going to ask for those tapes, they also have made a request for those memos that the former FBI director made as well, and those have yet to be handed over. We do know that those exist. When it comes to the tapes, that could have just been rhetoric that the president was saying to kind of cool the situation down. But if they do exist and, you know, and it gives an insight into the conversation, it could be one of those things that comes back to bite the president, think back into the 70s. Uh, last check, uh, the president has not tweeted anything about James Comey's uh, testimony today. Do you, do you expect that to change over the next few hours? Well, we were told that he may do it, he may not do it. Earlier today, we had been uh, we had been advised that uh, the White House uh, counsel, some personal counsel for the president, were sitting around the table. They were going to be dropping in and out of watching the conversation that James Comey was having. So far, the president hasn't tweeted anything. A fun note, though, here in D.C., there are a number of bars out there that have promised to buy a round of shots for everyone in the bar for every tweet that the president sends out. <laughs> these bars are coming out on top right now because they have had to buy nobody anything. <laughs> so it's good for business in, in terms of people being there, but not necessarily handing out drinks. Absolutely. <laughs> we have uh, just uh, moments ago, and I, I know you haven't uh, seen or heard the last uh, few minutes or so, but a White House spokesperson has just come out to say uh, she doesn't know if President Trump is taping his Oval Office conversations, but will try to look under the couch. So uh, apparently the White House is trying to have a little fun of this as well. They are, but this also speaks true to the administration where there's not a lot of conversations that happen between a strict line of people. You have the odd person saying the odd thing. So this could actually be the White House saying, we don't know if he's recording these conversations because he may not tell us. He may only be telling one other person. It'd be, you know, one of the best things to do would be to ask four or five different people in the administration. And maybe we'll actually find that there is a little bug under the table. Uh, Could this be a precursor to any sort of impeachment hearings, do you think? I don't think that that's where we're going to end up. I mean, there are still a significant number of Republicans that are in control of the House right now that are standing behind their president and say, well, look, he didn't obstruct justice. There's no uh, confir- uh, no confirmed collusion with uh, with any Russian counterparts right now. I don't think that they're going to go forward and say, look, let's send an impeachment up to the Senate and get him out. That could change. But going forward, as of right now, this just looks like one piece of the pie. And there are you know, a couple of other slices that need to be cut into before we continue the investigation forward. Uh, there's no doubt that the president, or at least the Trump administration, is going to respond to what uh, former FBI Director James Comey had to say today under oath. How do you think they do that? Strategy-wise, how are they going to approach this, do you think? Well, one of the things they might look at is, you know, trying to figure out if FBI Director Comey perjured himself because he's given a couple of different um, accounts of, of his conversations over the last couple of months. And both of the times that he's done it, he's been under oath. So they may be trying to look and say, look, you can't believe the the old former FBI director because everything that he's saying is kind of all over the place. You're also going to look at it and say, well, look, how can you trust the FBI director? He he kind of, you know, mangled up the end of the Hillary Clinton campaign. He's kind of got it. His eyes set out for Donald Trump or at least he did before he lost his job where do you you know who, who do you put your trust into the administration just wants to look at this and say this is clouding the uh the agenda that the president wants to put forward so stop focusing on russia and just focus on the president that's how they're going to try to spin this obviously james comey i would be surprised if he didn't do the the, the media circuit whether it's uh, you know late night tv or or, or uh, news organizations from coast to coast down in the states uh, what, what do you think his angle is going to be I think he's going to be careful. I mean, he still has another meeting that he has to go into. It's going to be a closed-door session with the Senate Intelligence Committee. So, I mean, there are going to be things that we didn't get a chance to hear today that will go, you know, kind of in on the record, but in a classified setting. Then I think once he's been able to spill his guts on that, we may see him start going forward, but taking a very subdued tone to this. I mean, he's, he's not going to sit there and put himself in any jeopardy by saying, here are the things that I want to say, here are the things that you want to hear. He's, you know, he's kept a low profile since the day he lost his job. He's been, you know, just making his couple of peers 
appearances here and there. Going forward, I think it's just going to be watching what he says, watching how he deked around his answers today, and then going forward, it's kind of one of those, well, we'll see what he has to say, but the investigations are going to continue regardless. James Comey was a much-respected director of the FBI uh, during his time there. Uh, Trump has called uh, the FBI, uh, you know, a a force or a service that's in turmoil. How is he going to be able to repair that relationship? I mean, this has been going on since the day that he came into office. I mean, you remember him going to the FBI and he was basically met with jeers from everybody in there, with the exception of his personnel sitting in the front two rows, and he had nothing nice to say about it. I mean, this goes back to him saying that the FBI director had lost all trust of the FBI, and it didn't happen to be true. So, I mean, the president has a long way to go to mend rifts that have, you know, formed with many agencies. The FBI is just one of them. He's got four years in office right now to try and get these things back together. It's it's going to be up to him and how he uses his words to see if he can actually get things going again. Reggie, great analysis. Thank you very much for the time, and uh, good luck with the rest of the day. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Continuing on in uh, the political talk here in uh, our second hour, uh, and, uh, well, you, you can you can call this amusing, you can call this frightening, uh, some would probably say it's maddening, uh, but Ontario Liberals uh, tend to steal uh, the ideas of the Ontario NDP, so says NDP leader Andrea Horvath. And, uh, of course, this is coming with one year left uh, until the next provincial election, unless there's going to be a snap election called. But uh, I thought to myself, uh, man, you know, if the Ontario NDP is claiming that the Ontario Liberals are stealing their ideas, uh, you know, is this a thing? Is this is this what politicians do, is steal ideas? Uh, you know, there's few and far between allegations from politician to politician to say, hey, that was our, that was our idea. Kind of hear those claims from time to time, but for a party leader to say, you stole my idea, um, to me, that's, that's somewhat rare. I can't remember the last time I heard that. I'm sure. I'm sure it goes on uh, from time to time. Here to talk about it is uh, Cheryl Collier. She's an associate professor of political science at the University of Windsor and joins us now on the program. Cheryl, how are you? I'm good, Rick. How about yourself? Not too bad at all. So, uh, do you believe these claims uh, from Andrea Horvath saying that the Wynn Liberals are stealing all their good ideas? No. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Um, yeah. Well, I, I'll, I'll, what I'll, I'll suggest is that there, there's overlap in these ideas, but I don't think Andrew Horvath uh, is, is uh, the first person to come up with these ideas, uh, nor uh, I don't think the Liberals are, are parked outside the NDP uh, leader's home, uh, you know, tapping into her phone to kind of uh, get those great ideas and, and steal them before somebody else, you know, uh, mentions them. Uh, what I would suggest is what you're seeing is the Liberals right now tacking on or treading on what normally would be NDP territory. But, you know, the parties, they, they move around a lot. Um, it's it's hard to really kind of pigeonhole them specifically in one spot and say that's an NDP kind of idea or that's a liberal idea or that's a progressive conservative idea. Um, it, right now, all three of the, the leaders seem to be interested in carbon tax. And that's, I think, more of a reflection of the... Uh, of the leaders themselves, uh, and uh, and depending on who's leading the party at any point in time, the party will take a little bit of a flavor, uh, uh, you know, maybe left or right. And I don't like using those terms specifically, but you know, for argument's sake, you can. Um, and you could say right now uh, that uh, Kathleen Wynne is a little bit more on the the kind of progressive left side of the uh, of the spectrum inside the Liberal Party, and that's pretty close to where Andrew Horvath is. Is that, uh, I don't want to call it, uh, you know, a policy change, maybe it's more of a a morphing or a shifting, but is that just born out of our economy that has become so diverse? Um, I guess. Maybe not even the economy, just society in general is so so different than it was, uh, you know, decades ago. Yeah, they, they, you know, Ontario's always had a pretty diverse economy. This is one of the reasons why we've we've tended to be a leader in the in the country for economic strength. Um, and uh, you know, some of the hits that the province has taken have been the, the structural adjustment, in manufacturing, and uh, and the fact that a lot of those jobs are are moving outside of uh, of of uh you know Canada and the United States to be honest so uh there's been an adjustment there and automation is changing the way manufacturing works that sort of thing but we've always had a really large service sector um there's always been quite a diversity in the economy so uh it definitely there is uh 
there are more uh, places that you can turn, I think, for policy ideas. Um, and Ontario has always been, I would suggest, more of a centrist per, uh, province because of the fact that it has that diversity in the economy. Um, whether or not you want to be doing more, I guess, as a government, that that says more about your fiscal position. And I suppose um, because we're going into election, now you see the Liberals saying, okay, we're going to spend a little bit of money. They've they've hit their balanced budget targets, so they think that they can do that um, and, uh, and still hold uh, uh, some kind of trust, I suppose, with the electorate that they can continue to, to, to be uh, good managers of the economy. But, you know, of course, that's, that's to be seen uh, down the road and uh, how they're going to pay for a lot of these things is, is still kind of up in the air. Uh, the official quote from uh, Andrew Horvath is, uh, quote, they tend to steal our ideas and then really fumble the ball when it comes to implementation or getting it right. Um, that's, you know, I, I, I read that comment and it's almost a double-edged sword for me because uh, the Kathleen Wynne liberals have taken a lot of backlash, especially over the, you know, the energy portfolio. And if they're stealing any of the ideas, supposedly, from the NDP, Ontarians, to my mind, will think of that to say, well, if this is an NDP idea and it hasn't worked, regardless of what the Liberals have done, why should we vote NDP? Could this almost blow back in their face? Yeah, I don't know if I if I think it's a great strategy. I don't. It, it almost sounds like she's a bit frustrated um, because they had a platform at least that they wanted to go with, uh, where you're out from the election, and maybe they're seeing that there, uh, that there's not a lot of room to move. Uh, again, you know, because Ontario is a centrist province, I, and I would typify it as centrist. The NDP doesn't want to move too far to the left. Uh, the last time and the only time actually it was a government in uh, in Ontario was when it sat pretty pretty much in the center. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, I think, probably a little bit wary about moving left. Um, however, Horvath was, was tagged and, and criticized by a lot of the people in her party for moving too far to the right. Um, and Wynne actually took this space the last election, arguably. Um, and that's maybe not a comfortable place for her. Maybe she was hoping to move back into this spot. Maybe she thought the Liberals would move more into the, to the kind of center, center right where they have been, uh, uh, in the, in the past, uh, particularly, I would say, under Dalton McGuinty, uh, when he was premier. But, uh, that's not the case. And, and I'm not really surprised. Uh, the choice that the Liberals made to go with when this, this kind of the tea leaves were there already. You could see this. Uh, being where she is specifically comfortable. She's a social justice premier. Um, you know, she took on notably the, the Aboriginal portfolio as soon as she became premier because that was what mattered to her and she wanted to, to be more, uh, kind of attuned and, and, and have her hands on, uh, on, on some of those social justice files. So this isn't surprising, I don't think. So, um, I don't know why she's come out this way other than if she's trying to, um, I, I don't know, it kind of set herself up or the party up with, you've, you've got to trust us to be able to, to, if you like these policies, we're the ones that are going to gonna be able to actually deliver on it. That seems to be the message, but I don't know how how um, successful that's going to be. I'm, I'm a little... Uh, a little curious as to, to the strategy, to be honest with you. Uh, we are uh, in discussion with uh, Cheryl Collier, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Windsor here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott today. Um, are Horvath's comments almost a sign of a desperate leader? I mean, th- this is, to me, this is her last kick of the can, I would think. Yeah, and you know, if you look at the recent polling numbers, and and we 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 have to do this, but we probably got to be careful because polling numbers have been shown recently to be, uh, uh, you know, we know they're snapshots in time, but sometimes we have to take them with a grain of salt, even close to the election, and we are a, a whole year out, but. Pretty steadily, we've seen that the progressive conservatives have been, uh, you know, the choice of people in a, in a kind of phantom, if, if you were to vote today, who would you support uh, uh, election uh, since pretty much mid-2016. So, uh, you know, this and this is a party with a with a leader that nobody really under, uh, knows really well because he's been really careful uh, to, uh, to, to kind of Patrick Brown to keep himself uh, out of the limelight, not say anything controversial probably strategically a good thing um, and we'll see what what happens when uh, when the campaign ramps up but that must be a little bit um, disheartening for Horvath at the same time we see that she's the leader that people like the most uh, that find the most trust
trustworthy. Um, so she's she's personally popular, but she's the party still is not um, getting any any uh, traction from that. So I, I think there is a, a level of frustration here about where she goes and how she's going to run this uh, this election. But uh, I'm, I'm going to say they better figure it out quickly because uh, there's not a lot of time. Uh, there has been talk of uh, perhaps a snap election in the next uh, few weeks or few months. So what are the pros and cons for each party uh, in terms of a snap election? Um, I guess the one pro for the uh, the liberals is that you catch, you try to catch your uh, your opponents off guard. Um, so particularly, they're they're going to try and catch uh, Patrick Brown and the Progressive Conservatives off guard, uh, hoping that they don't have a platform put together because we know they have been really kind of light on any policy details, etc. Maybe they're hoping to catch the NDP off guard by stealing their policy ideas, if if we're going to borrow that language, um, and so they really don't have any reaction to that. Um, I think it's risky though for the Liberals to do this. So the downside for the Liberals would be, uh, I think a lot of people still aren't sure that they want to trust uh, Kathleen Wynne. Uh, I think she needs a little bit more time for some of these ideas to kind of gel with uh, with Ontarians. Um, and I think she's more of a seasoned campaigner than than at least Patrick Brown, and, and she'd probably be better to see how the how a campaign would would uh, would uh, you know maybe benefit her uh, in the in the long run. You know, the last election, the Liberals were behind to start the campaign. They actually won it through the campaign. So that was, uh, the campaign actually worked for them. So I'm not sure if it's ideal for them to call a snap election. I'm sure they're thinking about it. Um, and and there are some reasons why it might work for them. Uh, there's a court case to do with the whole, uh, um, uh, uh, whether or not the Premier's office had uh, destroyed emails with uh, with the moving of the hydro plant. This happened under McGuinty's Liberals. This isn't something that uh, that Wen was specifically involved in, but you know it, it makes the party look like it's it's kind of a little crooked. We've already seen them for 14 years, and I think that might be negative. So if they're trying to get out of that uh, coverage, maybe they want to call the election before that happens. Um, the benefit for the other two is is I guess the the downside that I would suggest with the Liberals with their ideas, maybe not totally taking hold. We know that the public likes some of these ideas already, uh, at least early forum polling on it is saying that the pharmacare idea has some legs and and maybe they, they could make something out of this. Um, but it's so new and maybe a lot of Ontarians don't know what's uh, what's been announced, nor do they understand it. You know, there's you and I follow the politics and your listeners, of course, follow it very closely. Uh, but, you know, your average bear uh, Ontarian is probably not following it as closely. So uh, maybe that that would be a benefit to both the PCs and the NDP. Um, and, of course, there's that whole change thing. Uh, I think a lot of Ontarians really just, uh, you know, I was looking at some of the on- online comments on whether or not there'd be a snap election. A lot of people are like, bring it on, because they really would like to see change. Um, they're sick of the Liberals in power. So, of course, that's going to benefit the other two. It's like a long and drawn out uh, marriage uh, that uh, the, other, the, the other person just wants to get out of. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, you mentioned, uh, and I agree with your comment about uh, Patrick ba- Brown being uh, careful. Has he been too careful? And now that we're under a year to go for the election, unless a snap election is called, but now that we're under a year, do you expect him to ramp up his uh, you know, appearances, his uh, his coming out party? I mean, is this time for him to step out of, uh, of the darkness and, and into the spotlight? I think so, and I think we're going to start to see that a little bit. Um, it'll be, and I think it'll be a slow ramping up, um, and and very careful again. Um, they they have a policy uh, convention, I believe, in November, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so they're going to want to to have the, the details of their policy. Uh, you won't see much of that until after. Uh, the November uh, convention, um, and I think that really hits uh, a lot of the the bells and whistles of, of the Progressive Conservative Party, listening to their base and, and listening to their members, and, and I think they're probably going to want to get Ontarians excited about that negotiation and that possibility of, of what we could do. Um, and at the same time, I think he wants to, to look measured. He wants to look like a good alternative, like and very premier-like, um, and somebody that that can be trusted. Um, you know, for the most part, the Progressive Conservatives are the natural next party if we're going to go back and forth uh, between the Liberals and an, and an alternative. Um, I don't want to 
sell the NDP short, but really they've only formed one government in the history of Ontario. So it's not like they're a natural, uh, you know, if we're looking for change, we're going to look to, to that, that, uh, to that avenue. We're, we're probably looking progressive conservatives. So he knows that he has that going for them, for him. Um, so he doesn't want to, uh, to mess with that. He wants to make as much of that, p- uh, potential as possible. And, um, I would think he'd like to grow his trust numbers, uh, more so than people have them right now. But I think people will give him a, a listen. And, uh, you know, it, the, the election is his to lose, to be honest with you. I can say that a year out, uh, really is. Um, and, and I said that about, uh, uh, Tim Hudak, uh, last, uh, the last election. Unfortunately, they did lose that election. Uh, and so that's, that's unfortunate. Uh, for them, but I think they've learned their lesson. They've seen this happen before, and so they really want to be careful about the way that they introduce him to uh, to the province and make sure that uh, that his best foot is forward. Given what has happened over not only the last few years under Kathleen Wynne's leadership, but over the last 14, um, do the PCs play it a little more aggressive, knowing that there is a distaste for you know what the Liberals have become in terms of uh, you know the, the hydro pricing and the the whole electricity file and, and you know the multitude of other things that uh, they've either fumbled or, or Ontarians really haven't appreciated. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's going to be a lot of that reminder of all that negative. Um, and this is, again, why I guess we're hearing a little bit about this potential snap election, because right now the, the press around the Liberals is probably the most positive they've seen in quite some time. Uh, so they may want to try and capitalize on that. But during an election campaign, that's what both the, the progressive conservatives and the NDP are going to do. They're going to remind us all the time about the horribleness of hydro um, and that the, the this is really a quick fix, um, something that probably is going to come back to haunt them later on. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the reductions that, that, uh, that have been, uh, uh, been promised. Um, and I think the fact that it took them so long to react to that, I, I think that's negative. There's lots that they can really uh, remind voters of. Um, and again, the, the change, that, that kind of desire for change is such a huge motivator for um, uh, for a, an average voter in an election. And the Liberals were really lucky to uh, to kind of get away from that because they changed leaders. Um, you know, Dalton McGinty had been there essentially 10 years, just, just under. Um, so now we have had, uh, you know, uh, another leader for four years, but it's Liberals and maybe people see it as a tired, same old party and they, they are looking for something else. Maybe that, uh, you know, I think uh, Ontarians and everybody that, that uh, in Canada that vote, uh, I think we tend to think that politicians get corrupt over time. And there's a lot of that feeds into that narrative that the Liberals actually have done. Um, so all the progressive conservatives in the NDP have to do is to remind us of that message and that narrative. And I think uh, as long as they can keep their, their policies in, in a good, uh, good light uh, and don't, you know, uh, mess up too much on the campaign trail, then they'd probably be looking good. And and again, I would put the looking the best in the progressive conservative uh, column right now. I'd love to continue the conversation, but we are uh, out of time. Cheryl, thanks for the time today. Enjoy your day. Yeah, you as well. Thank you. Take care. Cheryl Collier, Associate Professor of Political Science, University of Windsor, uh, peeling back uh, a little a piece here and there regarding the uh, Liberals, NDP, and the PCs, and certainly the comments from Andrea Horvath that the Win Liberals are stealing all their good ideas. We'll see how this pans out over the next year or sooner if a snap election is called. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. To end the show, we're going to end it on uh, somewhat of a uh, an interesting and intriguing note, and that's about uh, teleportation. I've been teeing it up uh, throughout uh, the program, but a new survey from Next Canada, this is a nonprofit group uh, devoted to advancing innovation, asked uh, 1,200 Canadians uh, if they agreed or disagreed with a, a set of predictions from a panel of entrepreneurs and experts in a variety of fields. And one of those was teleportation. Uh, so within the next 150 years, uh, a third of Canadians say, "Yeah, they can see this. Uh, they can see this coming. They can see this forthcoming." Uh, here to uh, shed a little light on uh, this prediction and a whole lot more that we can get to is uh, Dave Carter, Executive Director at Innovation Factory. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I know it was quite the hike for you to come uh, just yeah. down the road and, uh, <laughs> and join us, but uh, this is a fascinating topic. Whenever we're talking about moving human bodies without any vehicular help. 
uh, from point A to point B, uh, and, and apart from running or walking, uh, this really caught my eye. So uh, what are your thoughts on this? Teleportation in 150 years. I think it's been expedited by the way United Airlines is treating passengers, <laughs> and we're just looking for some better alternatives. <laughs> you know, it's funny. When, when I heard uh, what the interview was about, I sort of rolled my eyes and said, oh, teleportation, what kind of crazy talk is yeah, this? Yeah. But it was the 150 years that makes you sort of go, hmm. Maybe. And so we can't think forward, but if we look back and we said, well, 150 years ago, that's confederation. Right, right. So if we walked up to John A. McDonald and said, in 150 years, we're going to have these little glass devices you can look at and see your friends mm-hmm. and do this and this and this, come on, what do we say? Because it, you, know, you can't think that far ahead. You have to sort of go and look at the interactions. Like Even right. if you said we're going to be on the moon yeah. 100 years later or – I mean. 150 years ago, there was no cars. There was yep. no radio. Uh, we hadn't flown a plane yet. So anything we say along the way would be incredible. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, you know, the 150 years out. It's like all these things that become enablers. Yeah. So it's not crazy, right, when you say 150 right. years. 150 years ago, if you mentioned DNA, they would look at you like you were an alien, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then you think of, like, I, it was good sort of time to reflect and go, well, what? What did happen? Well, there was the grunt years of invention when you went to a lab and you did some work. Right. And then in 61, when they started using computers for the space program, that took away the, the grunt work of computation, which mm. literally computers were people right. back then. Yeah. Um, and so things started moving faster. And then fast forward to the 80s and 90s, personal computers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Now it's really fast. We communicate faster. We compute faster. And then this new era, so that's, you know, that's what just happened. Yeah. If you think of the new era being artificial intelligence and all the other enablers, mm-hmm. now it's going to move fast. If we thought the last 150 years went by fast and, and accelerated in terms of invention, yeah. now we have computers doing the grunt work of you know, weeding through millions and millions of pieces of data, billions and trillions yeah. of pieces of data. Uh, the way you put it, I mean, it almost sounds kind of scary to think uh, you know, th- this and, and other things could be possible, good and bad. Yeah, even, you know, I can literally remember my, my uncle and I working on a, you know, trying to say, well, if we want to define, uh, build something that looked like a UFO, how would we do that? Right. But the motors weren't powerful enough back then. Now it's a, it's a you know, $50 drone. Yeah. Uh, which does what we were trying <laughs> to do. Amazing. But it has a little computer on board. It has yeah. these little brushless motors, which are 10 times more powerful than anything you would have had in mm-hmm. the 80s. So um, all those things are enablers and, uh, you know, 3D printing. So now I can invent something. Build it on computer and see a prototype an hour later. Yeah. All those enablers are going to help us make some giant steps forward in the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about 150 years. I, I, I just can't even imagine. That's a lot of time of innovation yeah. for sure. Uh, do you think it would be uh, – do you think teleportation would be a positive or a negative? I mean I could see them both, but w- w- what would you lean towards? It's tough. I, th- I think it would be a positive. It's just – it's tough to say what would we use it for. Yeah. You know, we haven't used science – uh, to to make humanity better for a lot of people. There's still people starving in sure. Africa. We, yeah. we know how to solve these problems now. We just don't tend to apply it to that. We tend to apply it to, you know, space travel and things, things that yeah. are very, very sexy. Right. Um, so will we use teleportation for some some good? Will we just teleport someone out of a uh, economically bad environment, feed them because it was cheap here, right. send them back send them home back. and say, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was nice to see you. Yeah. It, there's, there's so many things you could do with that. And maybe it's not even teleporting people. Maybe it's teleporting products. Yeah, things. You know, and so, so the movement of goods, it, like – it's just insane if you sort of riff on that mm-hmm. sort of thing. We wouldn't. We would. Uh, I'm just guessing here. I mean, if this does come to pass, we wouldn't need airlines anymore, or or, or cars and trucks, or trains, or any of that uh, mode of transportation. Yeah, and you know, the stuff I'm seeing now, even so, you look at startups. So you know, you guys have been a big supporter of Lions Lair, where we have yeah. you know, a bunch of startups come in, and you always sort of think of these startups as doing something. You know, small and meek. Two of our startups in Lions Lair are basing their technology on artificial intelligence. One is using artificial intelligence to make marketing decisions. Mm-hmm. One's using it to read um, uh, MRI scans to, to highlight areas so surgeons can just, you know, be told, hey, pay attention to this yeah, area. Yeah. So that's happening at the startup level. Now imagine if you gave that group, you know, a, a raw material like teleportation and said, mm-hmm. invent a business around yeah. that. And here's $50 billion yeah. to do here's it. Here's $50 billion yeah. to do it. And now go invent a business. And someone in goods movement is going to say, well, I'm going to move truckloads of stuff and right. I'm going to get rid of rail. Yeah. The other thing that's doing the same thing is you know, we're looking at connected autonomous vehicles. And people always think about the self-driving aspect of it. But think about how your house would change. You don't need a garage. Mm-hmm. You don't need a driveway because after the car drops you it off, the car. it goes somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to build. So, again, these are things that are all going to happen in the next 10 years. 
if this happened in 150 years, <laughs> I, I always think, what would the, what would the uh, entrepreneurs be building? Yeah. Right? What would the the would, world is, would be a, such a different place, that's for sure. Well, well, you think of a lot of money and uh, markets are based on goods, right? Yeah. Commodities at stock exchanges and things like that. So it would change. Yeah. Do you think we're just going to change currency? Yeah. Do you think we'd be more connected or less connected? Because, I mean, we could be traveling all over the place. Well, you know, as a dad of uh, daughters who grew up with cell phones, uh, I didn't think I got a lot of connection with them some <laughs> yeah, days when they're looking less. down, yeah. uh, texting things. I know but that But at the world. same time, too, you know, my, my oldest daughter, um, uh, you know, her boyfriend was going to move to Boston, and that whole long-distance relationship wasn't going to be a big deal because mm. they're always connected on the phones, right? right There's not right. those lapses in time. So, you know, it's always a double-edged sword. One yeah. is we're not – maybe we're not making enough human face-to-face contact – but we're not losing touch with our friends that might be mm-hmm. living across the country or, or far from us. Yeah. So, you know, someone will screw it up and do a bad thing with yeah. it. Some, well, some politician will do something dumb with it. I, and, I, uh, you know, there's a lot of bad people in this world, and I can just think of some of the things that they would use this for their advantage and do, you know, destructive things with it. Sure, and yeah. it'll invent a whole other secure, or, you know, a whole other business of security. That's right. So I can't teleport a bomb into, yeah. you know, someplace. Yeah. Uh, I can just see the NATO rules now or the, or, oh, yeah. or the UN rules. Uh, Dave Carter is our guest, Executive Director at Innovation Factory here on the Scott Thompson Show. Uh, another um, uh, few tidbits in this survey uh, found that 79% of Canadians agree that in 10 to 75 years, uh, there will be less food waste and we'll be getting our proteins from a wider variety of sources, including insects. Um, that I, I can see that plain as day because we're, we're seeing, whether it's a fad or not, uh, insect, gourmet insect uh, desserts or, or chocolates or what have you. Uh, and I, I'm totally for a lot more or a lot less food waste. That's for sure, sure. Sure. We even see, so, you know, not to keep tagging lines there, but we, we see more and more food companies and food innovation in that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, before when you would talk about insects as food, it would be something like a chocolate. You right. know, covered cricket. Chocolate it was cricket. very obvious. Yeah. But now you see things like cricket flour, right? So they grind up this protein, yeah. and now it's a flour, and you, yeah. and you bake with it. And so what you eat doesn't look like a bug with stuff. Right. You know, and it's always a joke with your, with your friends, and you start talking about the invention of some of these foods. Who first tasted that food and said, <laughs> this is <laughs> this good is to good eat, idea. right? So yeah. Yeah. maybe, maybe you know, we'll be saying that about bugs. Yeah. But all those things, you know, we see startups. That's what makes some of the startups amazing is they see every one of these new inventions or new thoughts as – a new opportunity for a whole right. you know, branch of things. So when the internet was developed, a whole bunch of new companies said, here's what I could do with that. Yeah. So just, you know, food is a problem that I think more and more people are recognizing, how the processing of food, the creation yep. of food, what it is we actually eat. Uh, even vegan, you know, we see a, a lot of vegan companies come in that are making vegan products, and it's not necessarily uh, just because of the animal welfare aspect of it, it's just more sustainable yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah, I think someone out there uh, has an idea and just hasn't put it uh, into a, in a practical sense to take food waste, whether it's from uh, grocery stores or restaurants or even in the home setting, and take that and manufacture something out of it, whether it's other food or another product. I think there's there's an idea there. Uh, we're, we're seeing it already. So uh, a company that came in is uh, making a cat litter out of um, – uh, you know the food waste refuse you put in your in your green bin. Okay, so they're wow. drying it out and treating it with the bacteria, so that that uh, cat litter will actually uh, react with the ammonia. So obviously, the cat smells all ammonia. Sure, but again, someone coming in going, yeah, we're taking your food waste, <laughs> yeah. and it's going to be it's cat litter. litter. And by the way, when it's done, you can actually spread it around your yard. It's not like that. You know, wow. Right now, it's clay pellets, which yeah. is a very obtrusive mining. Right. Wow, so this almost be the, uh, like a compost. Yeah, oh, yeah that's exactly what it ends up being. I wonder how they just come up with, hey, maybe we should make a litter out of this. It's, yeah, you know, it's just always that next leap. Someone says, hey, what are we going to do with this stuff? What about if you dry it out and do this and you see a product and someone says, well, that could work as cat litter or that could work <laughs> as garden fill or hair dye or whatever. You know, There's always someone that thinks yeah. of another use and it's those raw materials. Well, no, even you, you mentioned DNA yeah. off the top. We have we have a, another company on lines there that's taking your DNA and setting up a sports and exercise regimen for you based on what they learn from your DNA. Really? This is just You're an, talking about just, Taylor This is an off-the-shelf company. Right before you used to have like banks of scientists that would yeah. do this stuff. Now they swab your cheek, you mail it back in, you take this DNA sample, they compare it against because now we have millions and millions of records. Yeah. And they go, well, you're this kind of person. You probably should avoid you know this kind of exercise. You're wow. likely. 
I mean, isn't that crazy that we have that kind of data? That's phenomenal. Put, put that on an and app from a startup. And from a startup, yeah. right? That's incredible. Uh, another uh, tidbit here from this next uh, Canada survey: forty-nine uh, percent agreed genetics will allow us to modify our skin and slow or suppress the aging process in seventy-five to one hundred fifty years. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah, you know, you see so much to do with aging. We see a lot of companies come in that are uh, everything about detection. Um, well, uh, John Valiant here in, in Hamilton just got $25 million from Johnson & Johnson. Yeah. And he's got um, a way to target cancer cells where you're targeting an individual cell. So if you have a big lump, great, we can try to get that out. But right. if you have cancer riddled all through you, you can't operate on that. Mm-hmm. And he's got a technology that literally goes after individual cells that he's been developing. That's amazing. So it's not crazy to think with you know nanoparticles and other things, could we modify the skin or could we put a layer that's so invisible mm-hmm. on the skin? It, it, all these things. That, can you imagine if we were having this conversation just 20 years ago? I would say you're DNA. crazy. That's yeah. never going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> I was at a uh, department store uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, looking for uh, some stuff, and uh, my wife was in the aisle where they have you know all the, the facial creams and, and, and rubs and scrubs and, and whatever you want to call it. And the number of anti-aging products in that aisle is remarkable. I mean, the aisle is flooded the serums, with... serums, as I understand, yeah. by the 100 products on our shelf. Let me tell you, it's <laughs> incredible. Obviously, these companies are making millions, if not billions of dollars in selling this stuff. And, uh, you know, obviously that, uh, you know, 49% agree that genetics will allow us to modify our skin or slow or suppress uh, the aging process in 75 to 100 years. The person that comes up with whatever it is to slow that... Um, uh, in, in you know a he- healthy yeah. way is uh, going to be a, a gazillionaire. But think of you know we say this to all our entrepreneurs: solve a big problem. Don't don't just invent something because it's cool because you yeah. can create a lot of cool things. What's a big big problem? Yeah, yeah. And and what do consumers want? So it might not be a big problem for the world, but it might be a big problem for an individual. Right. Whether that's you know losing your hair, don't look, <laughs> don't point, uh, or or aging or all those things. There are things that you know. We as humans are self-conscious yeah. about, and we're willing to pay money for yeah. it. Uh, another 43% said, uh, what we wear will make us bionic, which is very interesting. I mean, we're seeing robotics yeah. and, and, and all that. That field really explode over the last well, couple we're of see- Well, we're seeing suits now for people that can't walk, so there's there's uh, exoskeletons now. That's, With that's, a, that's yeah. a real thing where people whose legs don't work can walk now. It's amazing. Super expensive. Yeah. So, again... Take the technology that's in a drone that we buy for 75 bucks at, you know, the source yeah, or yeah. Best Buy, and now you apply that to uh, an exoskeleton, and all of a sudden you've got something that moves, moves mm-hmm. your, you know, motor. In fact, sounds, look, go, go ahead. It sounds like all these technologies, and you can argue for and against this, is going to make our lives easier. In some cases, it could make, it could make it harder. Yeah, well, your rot- ro- excuse me, robotics is the big debate because, of course, if we don't figure out – Economically, how people are going to survive? We yeah. just replace a job with a robot. Now we have a social issue. Right. We're seeing a lot of people mapping their technology, their startups against a social issue as mm-hmm. well. Because mm-hmm. robotics is going to help a lot of people get cheaper goods. Yeah. It's going to wipe out a whole labor workforce. Uh, so there's always a balance, right? Everything. If you know, mm-hmm. if we could go. Uh, in a time machine and go ahead 150 years and they'd give us all that technology, I'm not sure that would yeah. be a good thing. Is that in the mindset of the person who's creating the product uh, or, or the idea in the first place? Are they thinking of that end, you know, impact? Yeah, I would say uh, millennials now, more than certainly in my generation, are thinking about their impact on society. Mm. They, all, they, they tend to show business plans that say they want to give back and part of, you know, part of my company is I'm going to hire these kind of disadvantaged people and right. I'm going to do that sort of thing. And I think it's because, you know, the Internet and communication, we see what's going on around the world. If there's a shooting somewhere far away and five people die, mm-hmm. we know about it. So we, right away. You know, the yeah. earth feels a little more uh, about each other now because of that communication, good yeah. or bad. And uh, I, I think, you know, my generation, so as a... Dude in his fifties, uh, we got to be oblivious to that and just try to be, you know, yeah. the next Bill Gates. Uh, Those and, were the good old days. Yeah, the good old days, boy. <laughs> uh, also, a, a majority of respondents, fifty-four percent, believe the world will see a global currency within one hundred fifty years. That's very interesting. And banking will uh, move entirely online in less than seventy-five years. That I can see as well. Yeah, that's that seems to be, to be too far out. You yeah. look at um, Bitcoin, which hasn't taken off, but the notion 
of um, cryptocurrencies has really taken off. Yeah. And, you know, you look at our bank card now. Cash to me is an annoyance. Yeah. I was at a place that had a cash. It's almost weird when you have cash it, it's now. It's weird. I feel, I feel like something, something dodgy is going on. They say, we don't accept cash. <laughs> yeah, I'll be like, exactly. are you dodging uh, I was at a taxes? store the other day, and I, hand, I, I, you know, I just happened to have $25 in my wallet, and I, I put it down on the counter, and the reaction from the person on the other side of the counter was like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's 75 Nobody years. pays with this I, anymore. I think in 10 years, uh, I'd be surprised if... if we even have cash. Yeah. Uh, it'd be pretty rare thing. It'd be, it'd be cheaper for governments. That's for sure. They wouldn't yeah, have to And trackability. It's all those things. You know, yeah. I, I talked to an investigator once. We were talking about uh, fraud. And he said, you know, the, the only place you catch fraud is when the currency finally moves because someone has to convert it into, right. uh, you know, this online exchange into real currency. Yeah. And that's where they can catch them. But. Once it's moved around the wires, it's so hard until yeah, it lands, right? Uh, one final point here. Sure. Uh, a large majority, 63%, believe traditional classrooms will go extinct and that education will be personalized through the use of AI, artificial intelligence. Yeah, again, if, if, if it's not that far off, right? Our, our colleges and universities here in town, Mohawk and McMaster, are, are looking at uh, MOOCs, massive online <laughs> learning communities. Yeah. Are, I forget what that acronym stands for. But massive online communities to learn in, so they're already – Doing personalized things mm-hmm. where they can connect, um, and with artificial intelligence able to you know answer basic questions. So think Siri and right. Alexa and all those those agents. Them getting a little bit better. Uh, sure, that's not yeah. again. I don't think that's a that's seventy five year. That's well, I think ten. isn't it the University of Phoenix has the largest online uh, enrollment? I think it's like in the six figures. I, I think it is. And in fact, um, so a couple of years ago, we had a guy named Clayton Christensen who's sort of. A uh, huge thought leader. He was speaking at Mohawk, and he talked about the innovator's dilemma. So he talked about how you know Toyota replaced GM, and then Honda or Honda replaced GM, mm-hmm. and and he said you know there's all these online universities that you think are as crappy little online universities, right. and of course they're no good. Just like we thought about those cars. <laughs> and he's a Harvard professor saying this, and oh, he said. Wow. So they're in our rearview mirror. We're like, they're so crappy. Who who cares? <laughs> but they get a little bit better and a little bit better. Yeah. And the big fat slow guys who are charging you know too much money. Yeah. All of a sudden, look in the rearview mirror, and they're right there. So it's it's happening really fast. Yeah. And, and you know, education. Do I need a degree, or do I need to learn this aspect of my job? I have to do in six weeks. Right. It will be just in time learning. Yeah. Know? And you know, you make a great case with the GM, Toyota, you know, Honda uh, uh, scenario or analogy that uh, you know it was too late at that point for GM yeah. when when those foreign uh, uh, automakers were right in their rearview mirror. They were well behind the eight ball. And it's hard to avoid. You see it over and over again. You know, I, I came from Microsoft, and you look at, uh, you know, all the other small players, and we were betting on this big, fat thing mm-hmm. called Microsoft Office, which is still around, but there was tons of little players yeah. coming up. But you can't stop yourself. You're just too big and fat and slow by <laughs> that point. Yeah. Bloated and, yeah. Last question for you. Sure. Uh, back, back to the teleportation. If you had to teleport somewhere today, where would you go? Oh, that's a good one. Jeez, I got a board meeting at four, so I probably <laughs> couldn't probably go too far. Out of that. I don't know. I think it'd be uh, someplace hot and yeah. be a beach involved, yeah, yeah. and in uh, a margarita not far by. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I like your thinking. Right. Yeah, uh, in five minutes from now, I could do that for sure. Uh, uh, Dave, thanks for coming in and sharing your views on teleportation. Fascinating topic, and and maybe it will happen. You mentioned 150 years. That's a long time for things to develop and and for people to uh, spark up new ideas. Yeah, thank you. Very the much. Scott. Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.